E-commerce isn't just an aspect of growing a successful wine business, it is crucial. And that's why I strongly recommend working with Offset Partners. As a proudly independent e-commerce technology and brand design company based in wine country, Offset understands the operational nuances and the customer service imperatives that distinguish a great online buying experience from a mediocre one. And that's why leading and legendary brands like Saxum, Arnott Roberts, and Kermit Lynch Wine Merchant choose Offset's proprietary commerce technology platform to power their DTC sales. If you're an allocated winery or a high-touch merchant that values an elegant, effective commerce solution for both you, your customers, and your team, reach out to the smart team at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com, to craft a better direct-to-consumer experience. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Jasper Morris on the show today, the author of Inside Burgundy and also website Jasper Morris Inside Burgundy. Hello, sir. How are you? Hello, Libby. Very good to see you. So in the late 70s, you were studying medieval history at Oxford. That's right. It was called modern history, but it stopped in 1485. After that, America gets invented and it becomes politics. So it began with the venerable Bede back in the 8th century. We called him, of course, the venomous Bede, and it went through. But I really liked that period and the later Middle Ages because it was a period when people made the difference because you didn't have a big theme. There weren't the religious wars that happened later. There wasn't the Industrial Revolution. So it actually made a difference when somebody got up one morning and decided to do one particular thing and it could change the life of the country. Oxford was where you really started to taste wine. I mean, you'd had some interest before, but... Yes, because we didn't drink wine as a family at home. But at Oxford, I got a little bit involved. My elder sister, Arabella, she was uh, studying for a PhD, and uh, she had got involved in wine tasting and tried to persuade me to join, and you don't want to do what your elder sister tells you to do. So to begin with, I said no. But I was lucky enough to have nice rooms in a college which was very central in Oxford. And she said, would it be possible to borrow those rooms to meet with her wine tasting group? And so since I was prepared to let her use the rooms, I thought I'd step in for one or two sessions and it didn't take long to get hooked. And eventually you and your sister both became master of wine. Yes, that's right. I mean, having been through the Oxford experience, we didn't find taking exams difficult. And so that was a, an enormous advantage. So that was in the uh, 80s, 85 I passed. Also during the Oxford time, you met your future business partner. Yes, I did. I knew him because his two daughters from his first marriage were zooming around Oxford at that time. I got to know them a little bit, got nowhere with them, got to meet him. And he subsequently, for his second wife, married my other sister, Araminta. So uh, he had a restaurant in Oxford called the Charwell Boathouse, which is where I then met my wife because she became chef there. And I went to sort out the wine list with her one day and sort of stayed the night. And uh, we got married very soon after. So Tony Ferdin was a big inspiration for me, and he was the sort of person who was always throwing out ideas, and if somebody else wanted to take up one of those ideas and run with them, something happened. And so he said to me casually, why don't we start a wine business? And I thought, yes, good idea. 
Because you had been doing a little bit of retail right before that. Well, we'd actually already had the idea while I was still at Oxford. And I knew that I didn't want to be a lawyer, which is what my family always have been. It uh, wouldn't have suited my temperament particularly. I don't think I would have been good at it. So instead, I was looking around to do something which I should enjoy. Maybe it was going to be with books or maybe with wine. And Tony had had this idea, but I, clearly I knew I needed some experience first. And then a friend of mine rang up one day and said, there's this new little shop starting in London. It was called Burley and Goodhouse. And why didn't I go along for a, an interview? So I did, and that worked out. And uh, I worked there for 18 months until I felt ready to start with Tony. And you met Harry Watt at that time? Yes, he was our consultant. and A really fabulous man, truly fabulous. Very, very simple approach to tasting. I mean, his tasting notes weren't very useful for selling the product because he would just say things like, oh, I say, this is rather good. Or, oh dear, that's not terribly good, is it? But he had a very straightforward but, but fabulous palate. And I certainly saw him on a number of occasions tasting without knowing what they were, the same wine. And he would always say the same thing about it. And even later on, after a car accident he was involved in, and he officially lost his taste buds, he certainly lost his sense of smell, he could still make good judgments. He's the guy that's famous for saying, I haven't mistaken Bordeaux for Burgundy since lunch, right? Yes, at least he is the one most often credited for that. I actually don't know if he did say it or not. But uh, one of the reasons why he was a good blind taster, he had no fear that he might get it wrong. And he was perfectly happy if he got something wrong. He knew he was only human. But where it, it does go wrong is when people start to get worried that they might contradict something they've said before. And uh, What did the wine trade seem like to you? And at that time, that would have been the 80s. It was much more male-orientated still. It was reasonably old-fashioned, the sort of thing that the, the third son of an aristocratic family might do. The first would inherit, the second would go into the army, and the third, it had to be either the church or the wine trade. But it was fun. I mean, it's a privilege, really, to be paid to drink wine when everybody else has to buy the bottles. Did you have any other mentors during that period? Well, I certainly learned a lot from Mr. Burley and Mr. Goodhouse, whose business it was. So Mark Burley was the founder and owner of Annabelle's Nightclub and various other clubs in London. But Annabelle's had this incredible cellar of wonderful, wonderful wines. Of course, the finest wines weren't very expensive then. And our staff discount was we had to pay cost price plus 10% plus VAT sales tax. And that meant Latour 1961 at £1.50 a bottle and things like that, I remember. And he taught me that you just needed to do whatever you had to do to make the finest quality product. So you didn't have to worry about simple bits of marketing. We didn't have any bottles in the shop window, for example. So people couldn't even really tell that our shop was a wine shop. But on the other hand, the people who would be interested in the high-quality wines that we had to offer would find out where we were and would come in. So it actually looked more like a club than it did a bottle shop. And Johnny Goodhouse, who was his partner, showed me how getting on with people was so important. Because he would come in in the morning and, and do whatever it was that he felt like doing in the morning, and then he'd go out to a nice long lunch, and he'd wander back in at some point in the afternoon and would just sort of incidentally say, oh, by the way, I've got these orders, and the order book would get rapidly filled up as everybody he'd had lunch with would buy a few cases here or there. 
And uh, there were some quite fun personalities who uh, I used to do a lot of deliveries in those days because it was, after all, my first job. So I got to know all my way around London really, really well, like a, a black cab driver. And I also got to meet some fascinating people who required their wine delivered. There was a lovely character uh, known as Cappy, who uh, never really paid his bills. And so my boss, Johnny Goodhouse, said, when you go and deliver the case to him, can you please get him to give you a check? So I tried, but instead tried to borrow money off me, the van driver. But uh, it was great fun. When you started your business with Tony Verden, you wanted to import wine into the UK and you spent about a year in France. Yes. So our idea was that we wanted to be wine importers rather than retailers. And the reason for that is that Tony had this restaurant in Oxford. And he also, with his partner Dudley Winterbottom, they ran the management company, which looked after the Chelsea Arts Club in Chelsea. So in fact, our first year of business, I lived in a converted bedroom in the Chelsea Arts Club. That was absolutely great fun because we had the former pop star Marianne Faithful was living in the bedroom next door. And Really? Really, yeah, really and truly. Like, was Mick Jagger around and stuff? No, no, this was post-Mick Jagger. So that meant that we had two proven bits of business to help us get underway. So in that first year, 1981, I drove around France, only France. Uh, Our logo was a map of France with a a wine bottle in it, which uh, fortunately turned out to be a burgundy-shaped wine bottle. Um, I can still remember going to the Côte du Léon and Bonazo areas, where there was a famous old property called Chateau de Fel, and they still had old vintages to buy. So I bought 50 cases of 1980, which I shouldn't have bought because it was a very minor vintage, 15 cases of 1979, 5 of 76, 5 of 66, and 5 of 1947, would you believe? And I stupidly sold almost all of it instead of keeping it for myself. But I do remember the people who bought it. They were the famous senior people in the wine business, people like Michael Broadbent, Serena Sutcliffe. They all understood immediately what this wine was about. Bought six bottles each. That was a splendid memory. It sounds like you found some success as an import company fairly rapidly. Not really. It was it was very hard going. I'm I'm not a. I think I am a good buyer, but I'm not naturally a salesman, and I don't have that sort of brashness which enables you to go into a place that doesn't really want to see you and persuade them to take the time to listen to what you've got, and also be prepared to accept a no first time and then go back and convert it into a yes and that's not really me so it was difficult um we started really from very small beginnings and slowly 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 built it up after the first trip to loire i think the second would have been to bordeaux uh, which was always tricky because bordeaux was already being very well done in the uk and you needed to have deep pockets which we didn't have And it's very hard to see anything that we could do which was different from other people. But um, somebody in Bordeaux, Christopher Canan, said, well, when you get to Burgundy, you've got to go and meet Becky. So he gave me that all-important introduction. And I came and met Becky Wasserman in the village of Bouillon. And uh, Becky at that point was with her previous husband, Bart Wasserman. So I remember over dinner the first night, and they kindly said I could stay, uh, so I didn't have to drive afterwards. But Bart opened a bottle of Latache 66. No, it was just, I mean, not a normal wine. Of course, it was a special wine. But it was possible to have those things then. They didn't cost anything much. 
So I went to bed and I could hear the cowbells clanging because the cows used to stay out in winter then and they all had bells around their neck. And I woke up in the morning and there was snow on the ground, which there hadn't been the night before. And it really was a fairy tale. And so I went back fairly soon afterwards and tasted again. And working with Becky at that point, before going back to his family domain, was Dominique Lafont. So Dominique is pretty much my age, and we hit it off right from the start, and he's remained my number one friend amongst all the producers here in Burgundy, separate from any business relationship. And it was the experience of tasting with him, because my very first two tastings that Becky organized were with uh, Costury and Dominique Lafont. So, I mean, you really couldn't do better. But we were a very small company, and I wasn't quite sure what we could afford to do. I didn't know what the market was for Burgundy in those days. It wasn't evident at all. And it's the greatest bit of good luck for me that I happened to come here, and I happened to get the introduction to Becky, and it happened to be just at the time that these really first-rate, domain-bottled Burgundies were becoming available in the marketplace when everybody else was still shipping from the big companies, some of which were very good, but others of which weren't. So the opportunity was there, and I did grab the opportunity, but it was an amazing bit of luck that it happened for me that way. So I tasted with Costurie, and I tasted with Lafon, and I thought I can only choose one of these. So in fact, I said no to Costurie, which seems a <laughs> not a great decision now in hindsight. And there was a moment when his son, Raphael, who was about to change his distribution a little bit in the UK, seemed to be ready to offer us some wine. I was at Berry Brothers at this point. And he said, yes, well, why not? And his father overheard it and said, no. He turned me down in 1981. He's not getting any now. And I must say, I do have to admire him for that. So with Dominique Lafont, it was, of course, still his father, René Lafont, making the wines there. And that was a fabulous experience, tasting with René. I still remember his stock phrases, like, uh, anyway, keep smiling. Sometimes it's difficult. And uh, the one in French about how to approach winemaking, which was, il faut avoir le courage de ne rien faire. You have to have the courage not to do anything. And this was what really turned me on to Burgundy. The fact that you could go there and taste for two hours in one person's cellar and they would explain everything. They'd tell you about the soil. They'd tell you about what they did with that particular wine, why it had to be handled differently from another one, what fascinated them about that vineyard. And at the end of it, there may easily have been nothing to sell, or there might have been something, but that wasn't the point. It wasn't meant to be a commercial transaction. It was people who were completely in love with what they were doing and wanted to share it. And that was unique about Burgundy. Because in Bordeaux, it was much more a question of, before you can taste, what might you be interested in buying from us? In the Rhone or the Loire, it was a question of visiting a farmer who happened to be farming grapes and making wine out of them. And you could have very good tastings and good relationships. But then sort of the farmer wanted to get back out into his vineyards. You didn't feel this additional cultural depth that was clearly here in Burgundy. Where do you think that that comes from, the articulation about the wines in Burgundy? That's something I've noticed, too, over the course of doing a lot of interviews, that there is a level of articulation about the wines that is uncommon amongst wine regions. Where do you think culturally that that derives from? Burgundy's has got its own culture, and it, it goes back historically. And that was a pleasure for me to reunite myself with my medieval uh, 
period, particularly as my special subject on my history exams at Oxford was Henry V of France. But that's the later part of the Hundred Years' War, when in fact England were allied with the Burgundians against the French. That resonated. And there was this period between 1364 and 1477 when Burgundy, though a duchy rather than a kingdom, was in a way the grandest kingdom in Europe at the time, the most pageantry. So all these things are there in the background of Burgundy. You do feel it is a a slightly special place. And it is especially the Cote d'Or. If you're up in Chablis, they may ask you, not how are things in the Cote d'Or, they'll say, how are things in Burgundy? You actually became very associated with Burgundy because although in your import days you worked with producers from around the world, when you sold the company to Barry Brothers and Rudd in 2003, they made you sort of the Burgundy honcho for the company. Yes, it happened slowly. So to begin with, we were going to do only French things at Morris and Verdin, and Burgundy was a small part of it. It then got bigger, and so I would come out here and uh, with Dominique, because uh, Dominique's role working with Becky was to prospect for other interesting new unknown producers. And we were ahead of the game. And three or four or five companies really had the best of Burgundy to ourselves. And it meant that we were working in a, in a new marketplace. And then, I may not get the year exactly right, but let's say around about 95, 96, our small company was named by the International Wine Challenge as the Burgundy Importers of the Year, and we kept that for several years in a row. And as a result of that, our reputation really did get established for Burgundy. But uh, a little bit after that, the oldest established UK merchant house, Berry Brothers, were looking around for ways to branch out further. They'd always been really good at Bordeaux. They were too late into the field in Burgundy and didn't have very much that they could be proud of. So they decided that they would buy a specialist. And this came at the perfect time for me because I'd run our business for 20 years. I'm not especially stupid, and I was reasonably competent at running it, but it had reached a level in which it needed professional management. From the business point of view, we were beginning to fall behind. And we were aware of that, um, and it's not what I wanted to do. I am not naturally an entrepreneur. We'd set up the business, from my perspective, so that I could have a job in wine and be as close to the producers as possible. But as your business develops and you find you're employing 20-odd people, then naturally enough, There are other things that you are doing instead of being out in the vineyards. So it came at the right time. So we said, no, 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 no. We don't want to. No, 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 no. Yes. (laughs) And we sold the business to them. And clearly, if you buy someone else's business, you need to make sure that you keep all the value in it. So they wanted to make sure they kept the producers, which they did, pretty much without exception, and kept the customers, which again they did, largely. So I stayed with them became their Mr. Burgundy, which also meant promoting Burgundy both at home in the UK and abroad in various Asian markets. That also would sort of indicate that the tide had turned in terms of the Burgundy market in general, that someone like Barry Brothers would say, this is a hole for us and we need to buy someone to cover it. It would indicate that maybe more acclaim had come to the region and the wines. Absolutely, the tide had turned. So the first 20 years of my working life was trying to persuade people to like Burgundy. We then had a sort of happy five years when it was really working. And after that, it's, no, no, slow down. No, 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 you don't like Burgundy. No, stop, stop, stop. There's not enough to go around, which is sort of where we are at the moment. 
But I think it is reasonable to call this the golden age. And for me, it starts in the 80s when people move away from the rather stripped out and uh, altogether to chemically functioning uh, wines that had happened before. And you can't turn things around overnight. But you can see in the 80s that the spirit was there and the new generation, as they're called, so Lafont, Rumier, Patrick Bees, Grivo, that crowd, they were beginning to make the big steps in the 80s, which were going to make the difference. Through the 90s, with plenty of good vintages as well, I think you can see red burgundy really developing well. And it's continued. And what really pleases me is that we can still see this hunger and enthusiasm for making the best wine possible remains in place. Because normally, I think you'd expect that after 25 to 30 years of this golden age, people would be getting complacent and assuming because it's them, because it's Burgundy, it must be good. And we don't see that. We still see innovation. You still see Lalu Loire in her well into her 80s innovating. And, and I think that's, that's most encouraging. And the new guys are, are fascinating and fabulous. And again, there's this energy. And on the whole, humility stays in place, which, of course, is the prerequisite. Because if you don't have any humility, then you are going to get complacent. I understand generationally and then also kind of underlying it would have been the new approach to farming, less herbicides that happened yep. in the, into the 80s, 90s, and people taking more care with the farming. Yes. So I get that that would be a, a reason why the wines would be better. But it seems also that maybe Burgundy has been a beneficiary of climate change. Probably a beneficiary of climate change, but it's, it's, it's dangerous and it depends how much further it's going to go. We do see more extreme weather conditions, which of course can be dangerous. We don't have a problem ripening the grapes anymore. We have many, many more harvests which begin at the very end of August or the early days of September. That are one a century, it's now almost one in two, it would seem. But we still have October harvests as well. So not everything leads all the time in the same direction. We have to change the viticulture a bit so that instead of doing everything in order to push to get sugar in the grapes, we can actually slow down the arrival of the sugar until such a point as the flavor ripeness and all the other parameters are in a good place. Where the best vineyard sites are is maybe changing a little bit as well. I think if you looked at Chambon-Musigny, you would have said that after the two Grand Crus and Les Amoureux, which is effectively a Grand Cru, then when I started out, people would cite Charm as the next winner. And nowadays, the excitement is more with vineyards like Les Cras and Les Fuets, which are higher on the hill. And also in Volnay, where Claude Chêne and Taipier, which were not very highly rated in the 19th century, are now everybody's favorites, along with Caire. So, yes, you can say that the quality has climbed the hill a bit without yet deserting the original prime area where the Grand Crus are. Something else about vineyards like La Croix in Chambol or Caire is that they do tend to have a little bit more limestone than clay, right? Like that might also yes. provide a little bit more backbone in an era where temperatures might be getting warmer. Yes and no. I think if you get too far up the slope where you are almost entirely on the rock with no clay in the soil, then I think in a dry summer there is a risk that 
you're going to have some drought problems, some hydric stress, which you don't get in the lower vineyards with more clay in the soil and uh, better water retention. I think it's more to do with the fact that the cool winds which circulate in the upper area have less effect nowadays than might have been the case, well, certainly in the 50s when everything was gold. But one of the things I really like about your book, Inside Burgundy, which you published in 2010, is that you really do sort of look not just at vineyards, but also soil types of vineyards in a way that I hadn't seen in a Burgundy book previously. So it seems like you've made the study of soils somewhat of a passion of yours. It clearly is important. It's frustrating that we cannot say for sure that this sort of limestone bedrock guarantees this flavor in the wine. And we certainly can't say that any particular flavor in the wine is because the roots have gone down and they pulled out this little mineral and so on and so forth. We use minerality frequently. Geologists don't like us to do it. But if we use mineral as a descriptor, for me, it is more of a metaphor than any suggestion that there are minerals in the wine. So the soil is very important. You can see in the topsoil, you can have red soils and white soils and intermediate soils. The red soils are usually an indicator that there is iron oxide, which has been brought down by the ancient watercourses. You get it, you sometimes get it in the names as well, Pomar Rougien, Rougien for the redness. And you, you can go into that vineyard and you can see little pellets of iron oxide. You might think that red soil, red wine, but that's not necessarily the case because Le Maraché is a much redder soil than any of the Grand Cru's surrounding it. And you might also think, and it probably is more often the case, that a white soil can be a white wine, but the Caillere, Caillere meaning little tiny stones, of Chassin Maraschais and of Pudigny Maraschais is probably white wine soil, though there's still one person making a little bit of red Pudigny Maraschais Le Caillere. Um, Volnay Caillere, of course, is red wine, but an elegant one. So it is endlessly fascinating when it comes out in the names. So as you mentioned, Kra is indicative of being firmly on limestone, and lots of villages have something like Argilière, Argilas, or Lavière another word implying much more of the clay. So we know it's a, it's a clay-limestone balance. And I do believe that one of the reasons I love Burgundy so much is that I come from a part of England, Hampshire, which is also clay-limestone soil. Any uh, hard water out of the taps in Hampshire? Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. Just as bad as here. So what was the impetus to write the book? For me, it's really one of the benchmark books in English about Burgundy. And I think you did a great job on it. It's also quite heavy. And yes. uh, I think I've sort of pained myself by trying to rest it on my leg at different times and then trying to find a comfortable <laughs> position, but been very beneficial to my learning curve for Burgundy. So what was the impetus there to write that book? I wanted to write it for me, first of all, but also partly because over the years, I've learned so much about Burgundy. And I have the sort of mind that wants information, that it's what motivates me, the constant learning. So I sat down and I said, okay, I'm going to write about it the way I want to write. And also the thing which I think is missing in the other books, which have tended to be based around the producers. So I thought there is so much that's important in the understanding of Burgundy wines, which is to do with the vineyards. Now, I'm not going to say that everything is about the terroir. Of course not. It's the balance between the human input and the terroir. But we mustn't forget where the 
vines have come from in the first place. So that was my focus. Obviously, at the time that I wrote it, I was a practicing wine merchant, at which point I couldn't really make any value judgments. You know, this guy's good and this guy should be a lot better because that would have been inappropriate for somebody who was making his living buying and selling wine. But a second edition, I can be a little bit freer in that respect as I've now retired from commerce. And that's coming up. That's coming up. At the moment, it's looking to me as though it might just push back into 2020. We'll see. It does talk about method and capsule summaries that give a idea of what someone is doing in terms of maceration, punch down. But I think really the heart of the book is about the crews and the villages. Yes. I think you can get too bogged down in techniques that people use. And everybody wants to hear how it's done by some master winemaker. But if you try and use, if you used exactly the same techniques yourself, the wines would come out quite different. And even between father and son, when there is no change in technique, there is just a different imprint. I do mention the techniques that are used for the producers because it does help you define a style of a wine. And you may find as a consumer that you adore wines made with the whole cluster vinification, or you may hate them. So if you see those words in the text, it gives you a steer towards or away from. That does seem like one of the key conversations in terms of technique would be whole cluster use. Are there others that would come to mind for you that are key conversations over the last 30 years for Burgundy, either red or white? In the early days, I suppose the waves of little trends, and thank goodness Burgundy never gets submerged by a major trend that everybody follows. So you don't get sort of Michel Roland winemaking suddenly taking over the universe. Uh, You may get a generation in a village or a couple of villages doing it, but you won't get everybody. So in the early 80s, you had the analogous Guy Akkad, who went for the very enhanced cold soak at the beginning of the fermentation process and used a lot of sulfur. And as so often, a technique that could have been interesting was overdone. There's a period perhaps in which too much new oak was used. In whites, there was a period of batonnage. Time and time again, a technique is not so much discovered because it's often a technique that existed at some time in the past or some other place, but it's rediscovered. And it exists for a good reason, but normally for a specific reason. And then it's thought to be the magic bullet, and everybody starts doing it, and they start doing more. So you've even got some clowns doing 200% new oak at one point, or batonnage, lees staring. Yes, it's useful just to mix the lees up a little bit, but people did it more often, more violently, and then it denatures the wine. So the pendulum swings. Most recently in white burgundy, we've had this very reductive, uh, people talk of the... um, gunflint aromas or struck match in the vineyards everybody has got steadily more ecologically friendly quite a lot are organic a lot of people experimented with biodynamic for me it's just important that you do plow your vines or else use some other technique which avoids herbicides that's the real real no-go area for me I don't think it's essential that everybody is 100% organic, but I'm hugely pleased when they are. But clearly, 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 things are much, much better now than they were 25, 30 years ago. One of the problems with a vineyard 
is that it's stuck in the ground for, let's say, 100 years. And we know from our school days that in other forms of farming, you have to rotate your crops, otherwise the soil gets tired. And we can't do that in the vines. You can maybe grow some things in the rows between. You can certainly look after what's going on on the edges of your vineyards. And indeed, at the periods in which you may need to grub up an old vineyard, it would be so much better if people went back to leaving it fallow for seven years and putting in some cover crops then, uh, wildflowers, perhaps some vegetables, put in a few potatoes and see how your musini potatoes are getting on. Compare them with your Chambertin potatoes. And uh, you can put in nitrogen fixers, uh, all sorts of things. And there are some plants nowadays which it is understood that they're good for killing off the nematode worms, which are the things which spread the virus. When you don't leave a vineyard fallow so that the nematodes take off, you need to figure out another solution for not having virus. Yes. But if you figure it another way, it's a big ask to leave your vineyard fallow for seven years, plus another three years before you get even the first crop, plus another 20 years before you get a mature vineyard. So I enormously respect those who take the full seven years. But it's a very small number. The great majority say to me, no, we left it two years and that's long enough. So what about that reduction point? Just because it does seem like such a topic right now in the market, at least in the United States, where people are really drawn to those sort of wines for white. What gives rise to that flavor set and what is it? We don't like reduction in red wines. That's pretty clear. And it is appearing in red wines as well as in whites. But we do rather like it in white wines. And it is a question of when you're presented with a particular flavor profile. It's not quite a toss of the coin, but you can actually teach yourself to like something. If we go back to the 2004 crop, which was an underripe vintage with some pretty difficult uh, weather conditions through the year, which meant that people had to use a lot of sulfur in the vineyards. And in certain instances, I think what happened is that when the bunches of grapes closed up, they closed up around sulfur, which for once hadn't washed off because just before this stage there was one of the rare drier patches and that sulfur then remained inherently with the grapes and it reappeared i could taste that in the white wines in barrel but oddly enough not in the red wines and i didn't hear of anybody at that period who was claiming to taste it in the red wines so like a greenness exactly the green meanies as some people refer to it or the pyrazines which reappeared in the reds But in the whites, the 2004 has tended to have a good reputation and people have been comfortable with that. You've then had a few producers for whom it is or has been a signature of their style. I say has been because I suspect that they are planning to back off a little bit. There are one or two things which can lead to it. I think the fact that we have been using much more sulfur in the vineyards is having an effect, particularly as people go organic then you're sort of left with sulfur and copper. And then if you do this second path of the élevage in tank rather than in barrel, that I think can have this reductive effect. And you don't necessarily taste it at that time. Sometimes it comes out in the wines later. Then with the move towards different closures, the am, for example, you have to change your sulfur regime at bottling. And not everybody did that. So it's, it's a tricky one. And so often, 
you can see consumers, or indeed experts as well, reaching for the glass and smelling it. And a big smile comes on their face because they're smelling something familiar. Doesn't actually have to be a good thing. (laughs) And yes, the familiarity is the trigger point. For me, one of the interesting things about reduction, which seems to be more like a family group than a specific thing, is that it's a smell that is also a texture. Yes. It's pretty rare for me to smell a textural element, Mm. but this seems a clear example of one that's both. Yes, insofar as that a heavily reduced wine, and this is more noticeable in reds, you get a real toughness at the finish of the wine if you smelt the reduction at the front end. Conversely, in a wine from a very tannic year, people say you can't smell tannins, but actually you can smell them in terms of if it's a tannic wine, you get this leathery character, which you can pick up when you first smell it. So, oddly enough, it seemed to be every five years, but 83, 88, 93, 98, they all had this leathery aspect to them. And is there a historical parallel for a reduction? You're someone that has had a lot of experience with older Burgundy, both red and white. So is there a time in the past when there was reduction evident in the wines? Or I wonder. I haven't thought about that, and I'm not immediately aware of one. But in the old days, people used to rack their wines much more often. And I am slightly skeptical about the current trend towards not racking the reds. So keeping them, as before, for 15 or often 18 months in barrel, but only racking them when you take them out of the barrel and give them a period in tank just to homogenize. And it seems to me that with this mantra for Pinot being so fine and so pure and so elegant, you risk having some reductive characters and a loss of purity in the wines if you don't rack them at least once earlier on. And that could be straight after the malolactic fermentation or it could be just before the new vintage. For me, that's a good time to do one racking. It slightly diminishes the CO2 levels. And of course, you don't want to diminish them too far. But there has been one mini trend of certain producers leaving a lot more CO2 in the wine at bottling. That's one of the things I've really noticed in red burgundy production is that people are racking less in a lot of cases. And it seems like Lee's contact is thus also increased because with Mm -hmm. these racking, theoretically, you're moving off some amount of Lee's. And so I understand exactly what you mean. And it, it also seems like for white burgundy, as the wine spend less time in wood, there's maybe less time for reduction to kind of work itself out of the barrels through the staves. My worry for white burgundy is that people are drinking them young to avoid the risk of this terrible premature oxidation. And as a result, people are happy to make them to be drunk younger. But you're missing the real glory of the wine if you do that. And the long, slow winemaking followed by long, slow evolution in bottle made some utterly spectacular wines from Burgundy, the whites, in the 1970s. And I do fear that for quite a while we have missed out on that. You've had some experience where you at least have a suspicion that maybe if a wine is showing Premox, that giving it more air in the glass actually sort of freshens it up some. It can happen, but once you've opened the bottle 
and it is poxed. Uh, you've probably lost it. Occasionally, it will happen. I have seen that on just enough for it to be a little bit more than anecdotal, but it wouldn't be a majority of times. The majority remain that you've lost it. However, my theory is that in many instances, as long as the poor cork is not to blame, wines can go through an oxidative or even oxidized phase and come back to life afterwards. Now, there are only two ways that you can really rationalize this. If the whole wine is oxidized, there is no way you could reverse that. Either it is only one small element of the wine that's oxidized, and that is reversible, or we are looking at a phenomenon that looks, walks, talks, quacks like a poxed duck, but in fact it's something different. And we don't understand, and I can't find anybody, even people with a scientific background, who can really nail down the difference between reduction and oxidation and how they interplay. And we could be having some really complex thing going on that we haven't properly understood. But, uh, and again, this is anecdotal and not proven. There was a period when virtually every bottle of 1996 White Burgundy, a vintage I originally had great hopes for, uh, was oxidized and I stopped pulling them out of my cellar, but nor did I throw them away. And nowadays, whenever I pull one out, except occasionally when the cork is slippery and has clearly let much too much air in, uh, unless the cork has failed, the wines are now universally not only not oxidized, but they've actually turned into the wines which I originally thought they were going to turn into. So there is something going on, and it's true as well that we always used to say, when I first started learning about wine, that the white wines of the Rhone Valley did this. It was just taken as acceptable. And now that it's on a much bigger scale, and for white Burgundy, where so many more people have chosen this as their white wine of choice to lay down and wait to turn into great bottles, there's been such disappointment with the failures that even bottles which are not poxed, but have either some other fault, or have naturally oxidized over 15 or 20 years from a minor vintage, uh, they just get blamed as being poxed instantly. In that Rhone White example, some people, not everyone, have told me they think it's related to lees in the winemaking. And Sometimes in Burgundy, I've heard people say, well, it's related to Lees as well in terms of Premox. And but how related to Lees? Very clean pressing and not a lot of solids. Right. Was okay. Leading yes. perhaps to more Premox in Burgundy. Related to the lack of Lees, uh, yes. Um, absolutely. There are so many different theories about where it came from. Um, I think there is one key aspect in a general idea which is that with the huge success of red burgundy being about the elegance of the grape and how it's a, a ballerina and then people try to make chardonnay in this really fine and elegant way but chardonnay's muscular it wants to play american football or, or rugby or something like that it's not a dancer and you need to treat it as a muscular grape and let the natural brilliance of the vineyard and the time in the bottle bring the element of refinement to the table. So there's this word phenolic, which I'm not sure I completely understand because every time I talk to somebody about it, everybody seems to have a slightly different idea of what it means. But nowadays it's often used pejoratively. You know, I hate the phenolics in that wine or oh, horrible phenolic bouquet or taste in the mouth. 
which is a sort of greenness, perhaps, a bitterness, astringency would be really the word. And I'm sure this is how the great majority of white burgundies used to be in their youth. So they're picked not earlier, but less ripe, because you didn't have the same ripeness. They were uh, often crushed, which has died out, and I hope is coming back a little bit before the pressing. They were pressed in the old Vaslan hydraulic presses, which actually mashed up the skins way more than the, the pneumatic presses do. And then probably people kept more of the solids. But what is it that makes red wines what they are? Well, clearly it's the skins. Why would you not want to have some skins in your whites? And for such a long time, with the arrival of the pneumatic presses, with this idea that you want to make really elegant wines, you're really not using the skins, the solids, at all. So I'm sure that that is a key factor behind it. So I would like to see people going back to this rather more rustic, uh, almost aggressive style of making the wines. If you do that, however, you need to keep the wines for quite a while before they're good to drink. But if you think of those vintages in the 70s, like 1979, it was a huge crop. People sometimes say that it's overproduction, which is one of the causes of the pox, and I'm sure that's not right. But those big crops, 73 and 79, made wines which is, can still be beautiful today. Have you seen any instances where a white wine producer didn't change anything from the 80s into the 90s into the 2000s, but still experienced Premox? It's a good question because it's very hard to be sure that nobody's changed anything. There's a lovely story uh, from the Macanay from Puypuisse, from the super producer there called Frederick Bourrier, the Chateau de Beauregard. And uh, he was strongly advised by a very famous French wine critic to change from his hydraulic presses to pneumatic ones. And he didn't. He's resisted. He still uses the hydraulic presses today. And uh, said journalist, uh, <laughs> supposedly, has been along there and said, oh, aren't you pleased you took my advice to keep the <laughs> hydraulic presses? Don't know if that story is true or not, but it has a nice ring to it. Your book is really known for talking about crews and villages of Burgundy, and so I think we should spend some time doing that. Your book is also very good on the Macanay, but if we were to look primarily at the Cote d'Or, and start with the Côte de Nuit and around just south of Dijon. Okay. And kind of go south. So from there, we'd see Marcinet. Yes. Which is uh, hoping to get some Premier Cru vineyards. It's proving to be a long, hard slog. I think it's already 10 years since they originally submitted the dossier, and it hasn't quite happened. But there are some vineyards which do stand out a little bit. And it's changing this, this focus, this interest in those single vineyards is changing the view of Marcenet, which to recap briefly, it used to be just Bourgogne generic, Bourgogne Marcenet. It was allowed to include the name, but it was still Bourgogne. It applied to join in with the Cote de Nuit village and was told no, which is the best thing that could have happened to it, because later on it got its own appellation as Marcenet. But I think we used to think, well, it's you know, nice enough wine, but it's a bit simple. It's in the floodplain of the River Ouche, and the soils are not the same. But the bedrock is pretty much the same, and there are different forms of limestone there which show the different characteristics. And 
for a while now, I've just automatically assumed that a vineyard like Claude Duroy, I even write it down as Premier Cru, even though they don't have it yet. So, Marcenet is one of the accessible, fruit-forward vineyards. I don't find much individual character in the white wines, but the reds, they're really delicious, very accessible. You can make some uh, more complex and longer-lasting wines if that's the way you definitely want to go, be a Sylvain Pataille, for example. But otherwise, I think it's a little bit more. That It's not just affordable Burgundy. It's something that we need to pay more attention to and, and look at the different vineyard sites. And it's very different in style from its next neighbor, which is Pissan, which suffers from being accused of rusticity. It's not all rustic. It can be rustic, certainly. I think you can play around with that and maybe a little bit of whole cluster fermentation actually can reduce the rustic element. Or Amelie Berto is making some sublimely exciting single vineyard, the Fissins now as well. It's most easily thought of as a neighbor to Gevray Chambertin with some of the same characteristics. Gevray uh, misunderstood over the years because it's one of several places in Burgundy which are thought to be uh, masculine is the shorthand for it, which uh, is a bit tedious, isn't it? But wines with structure and tannins. But oddly enough, Gevray is not always a very full-bodied wine. It's definitely a red-fruited village, and we sort of expect to associate black fruit with more depth and red fruit with something lighter. But Chevre, it's got this red fruit and it's got a little bit of a savoury touch. You need to be careful with the use of the word savoury because it can also be a, an indicator to some people that the wines have got uh, the dreaded brett and that savoury is sometimes a euphemism for that. But this is a, a lighter, gentler form of a savoury character. So I suppose you maybe talk about umami if you like, Chevre Chambertin. Want to bring in another buzzword. And for me, there is a part of this character which stretches from Chevrolet through Murray Saint Denis, where the wines have got a little bit of a wilder character, but they still have this underlying savouriness. And that continues into Chambol Musenay for Bon Mar, which even though it, the vast majority of it is within Chambol, but in my heart of hearts, I feel that it's a Murray Saint Denis wine. And maybe Les Fuets, Les Baudes. The Premier Cruz at that end of the village definitely have some Maurice Saint Denis character. And then you get to the absolutely pure Chambol, which is Musny itself, Amoureuse, and other vineyards at the centre and southern part of the village. And oddly, they can be black fruited, even though Chambol, we talk about elegance, do we not? We talk about velvety texture, absolutely. Some floral notes, some violets. I'm not very strong on fruit descriptors, actually, because normally they are a signature of something, I won't go as far as chemical, but they, they can be a signature of either a type of winemaking, possibly even a fault, or a reflection of the ripeness of the year. So we have to be a bit careful if we infuse a fruit character into a particular vineyard or village. Like, for instance, you've associated whole cluster with strawberry in your writing. 
Yes, uh, crushed strawberry. Because if, if you eat your strawberries one by one, it's one flavour. If you take your fork and you mash them up in the bowl, it's actually quite a different flavour. And then you also get a little bit of a white pepper as well. But anyway, there we have our shambol with its, its sheer beauty. It's, it's the Volnay of the North, the uh, way I think of it. After shambol, you have the very small Rougeau, which is dominated, of course, by the Claude Rougeau. And that's hard to put into character because it doesn't have much character when it's young. When you're tasting it in the barrel, you can see the weight, you can see the concentration, you can see the power. But you can't really pick up on individual characteristics. And actually, it takes probably 10 years before Clovuchot starts to show signs of justifying its Grand Cru status. And do you think that that's related to parcel? or? I, I think that's fairly general. I remember fascinating tasting in Bordeaux, of all places, with Frédéric Angerer, when his boss had just bought the old Domaine Angel. And he got together a whole load of different Clos in order to look at which site meant what, top, middle, bottom. And we came to the startling conclusion that it made no difference at all. Good winemakers made better wine than bad winemakers. So really the truth is, yes, it does make a difference, but the quality of the winemaking is probably a stronger hand. Um, then we come to Von Romanet and... It seems to have everything, which is slightly annoying sometimes <laughs> that uh, one village should be so privileged. But it's got the power in the form of intensity, never heaviness. It's got an unbelievable fruit concentration. It's all red fruit, but really pure, driven, intense, I think I prefer to say, rather than powerful, red fruit. And there are very, very few vineyards which let the side down. And there was that saying back in centuries ago that there are no common wines in Von Romanet. And uh, unless a producer messes something up, uh, there really aren't. And there are several premier crews which in another village would merit Grand Cru. They don't need any more Grand Crus in Von Romanet. But when you've got something like Malkinsor, and, and it wasn't so long ago that Malkinsor we all thought of as a, a special value. But it wasn't that much more expensive than the other vineyards. Now the, the genie's out of the bottle, that's flown, and, uh, and Malcolm Saur has, has joined the Grand Cru pricing. Oh, well. One of the things that some other commentators have spoken about with Vone is Asian spice. And do you find that? Uh, no. I don't look for these flavor uh, points, and I think my palate probably isn't all that susceptible. What I'm trying to judge on my palate is the structure of the wine because my background is as an importer and you've got to be able to go into a cellar and analyze the wine and work out what it's going to be like in the future. If you want to know the intensity of the fruit and you want to know the tannins, the acidity, blah, 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 all those structural elements. And actually the flavor profile is less important. So back to our, our, our friendly Von Romanet. I'm fascinated also by the Vone plus Flaget Echezo pairing, which we've agreed that everything gets called Vone, apart from the Grand Cru's of Echezo and Grand Echezo. And those two are quite different, those two Grand Cru's. And it seems to me that Grand Echezo has something in common with Musigny. And I often think with Echezo, it puts me in mind of Ruchot Chambertin. 
They're both very intricate, lacy, fine-boned, relatively delicate for Grand Cru, but there is something which is personally, individually exciting about the wines. So for a Rouchard in your book, you sort of imply that that's because of erosion and that there's less clay there. Do you see something similar for Echezo or? Actually not, but it depends where you are in Echezo. It's a huge vineyard. So if you are in uh, Les Loachos uh, in particular, but also Poulailler, you've got a certain amount of clay. If you're in Les Rouches du Bas or uh, the tiny bit in Beaumont Bas or quite a lot of on Orvo, you've got very little clay. So there is more than one Echezo. And yet, I don't find in tasting them that it's all that easy to say, well, this has definitely come from the upper bit and this has definitely come from the richer clay bit. Something that you really explain well in the book is that these different sectors were subsumed into this one name, Echezo. Yes, because what happened when they came to make the Grand Cruz in the 1930s, people said, but we've always called this Echezo, or we've always called this Chambertin, we've always called this Maraché, whatever it might be. And in the case of Corton, they said fine, and they let it all be Corton, which of course has actually damaged the reputation of uh, what could be a really great appellation. Um, so then von Romanet metamorphoses into Nuit Saint-Georges, and I love this appellation, except that I think it's three appellations. If you are at the northern end of Nuit, vineyards like uh, Les Mergers and Les Boudots, Effectively, you've got the same class of fruit as you have in Von Romanet, but you've also got greater underlying power and structure and tannins that come from Nuit Saint-Georges. And I think those are fabulous, fabulous wines. Um, but then you come to the middle part of Nuit Saint-Georges, and that's what people really expect Nuit Saint-Georges to be. And these are dark-colored wines, and they do have a plummy richness, and in fact, a real depth of flavor. And that's backed up by some of the strongest tannins of anywhere on the Côte. And these wines need time. And if you think about a classic vintage from uh, Domaine Henri Gouge, that, I mean, that really would be the, the classic for real, in inverted commas, Nuit Saint-Georges. And you've got a triumvirate of vineyards, Les Cailles, uh, Les Saint-Georges itself, and Les Vaucrins, which are uh, pretty spectacular for me. Now, once you get south of here, you come into the commune of Premo, which sells its wines, of course, as Nuit Saint-Georges. But the style is totally different again. And you must have a lighter hand, uh, which is why it works very well that Frédéric Munier has got the Clos de la Maréchale. Um, it's an area where most of the vineyards are monopolies and all in their individual clothes. And they don't have either the little Vone touch, nor do they have the rich depth, but they're beautifully balanced, really attractive wines. Then you sort of come to the border between Côte de Nuit and Côte de Bonne, right? Yes, so you've got the hole in the middle, the Côte de Roche, where you actually make more money by ripping the limestone out and selling it as blocks of marble. And there are some okay vineyards along there, and I think we will see a little bit more interest in the Côte de Nuit village appellation now that one or two growers are doing single vineyard bottlings. So like Comblochien, things yeah, like that? Yeah, Comblochien and Courgelois. Two of the hardest types of limestone are the Calcaire de Premo and the Calcaire de Comblochien, and in fact also the Calcaire de Chassagne in the south. So it's a stratum of 
limestone, which is so hard that if you want to plant vines on top of it, you pretty much got to blast your way in with dynamite to get there. So there are minor vineyards in this section. And then you come to the fabulous Hill of Corton, with its little uh, crowning of trees on top full of rabbits and wild boar and things that come down and eat the vines and eat the grapes. And you don't want to be nasty about Corton, but I do feel that they missed the trick by allowing so much to be Grand Cru. And in fact, they've gone on adding to Grand Cru both Corton and Corton Charlemagne. And it would have been a much stronger vehicle in the marketplace if you just kept the best vineyards as Grand Cru and a load of the rest had been Premier Cru, at which point people would have said, these are really good Premier Crews. You know, they're unlucky not to have been classed as Grand Cru. But as it is, Corton Grand Cru sells for the same price or less as a Premier Cru of another village. Also, it's one of those wines where people think that it's a big, butch, powerful tannic wine. Most of Corton isn't. Some can be. Claude Duroir, which is probably the greatest individual vineyard there, does have a lot of structure, a real concentration of fruit, and ability to make very long aging. Bressande next door, as the name suggests, it's a caressing sound of name, Bressande, and it is a little bit lighter and smoother and suppler silkier. Then you've got Perrier and Greve, both of which are tougher and more in the public image of Corton. But as you go around the corner and some of the slightly lower-lying vineyards, you do get a lighter approach. Les Chaumes would be one vineyard, Claude Lavino Sainte would be another, which are light years away from this massive structured type of Corton and still make lovely wines. Arguably, they should be very good premier crews, sure, but they're still lovely wines. And because it is a hill, there are different exposures, which sometimes in Burgundy is not the case. Sometimes it's somewhat of a uniform exposure. I think of this area as the Hill of Corton, and all three villages all combined together. And I'm pleased to see there's now a little bit of love being shown for some of the village and premier crew wines from Ladois, because there are some very nice reds and whites from there. Uh, Alors Corton, too often there are rustic tannins in the wines. There's a lot of humid clay. And in the village area, you get some slightly ugly names, which is suggestive that people don't think it's a really first-class site. You get Les Crapousets and Les Citernes and so on. So Alors Corton, I've had a bit more of a problem with, with certain exceptions. I quite like Pernan Vergeles when the word mineral comes to mind because you're tucked around the corner. It's a cooler site. You're much more on the whole in a limestone area with less clay. And you get some beautiful names like Les Belles Filles Sous Le Bois de Noël, the daughters-in-law underneath the Christmas wood. And there's also a magical vineyard there, the Ile de Vergeles, which looks due east, nice bit of slope. If it weren't for Corson in the background, that would be the special vineyard of Pernod Vergeles. If we talk about the whites there in the Corton Charlemagne, I would pull out three slightly different styles, one of which is in Pernod Vergeles, and arguably they've actually stretched it too far up into the side valley uh, as Grand Cru. But nonetheless, that's where you get the fine and racy, and it really does feel like licking fresh stones or water rippling over mountain stream stones. 
and that's a pretty classical form of Corton Charlemagne. But you get the what the French call the agrume, the sort of the grapefruit style fruit coming into it because it's a cooler site. And then you begin to come round into Alox Corton, and you move from En Charlemagne into Le Charlemagne. You're still got some west in here, but you're beginning to get some south as well. And you are still in this classically stony style, of course, on Charlemagne, but you're now beginning to get more weight into it. So here is where the original plot belonging to Charlemagne is located. You have the classic Bonnet du Martre domain, and that, for most people, would perhaps be the most classical Corton Charlemagne. But it continues on, and you've now got the full south exposure in land which originally was more thought to be red Corton, the Corton Pouget, Corton Longuette. And those vineyards, quite a lot has been turned over into white vines, into Corton Charlemagne. And you then go around to the third area, which is as you face due east on the band of white marl, which is near the top of the hill. And again, you're almost directly onto the rock here. So you do get a very chiseled form of Corton Charlemagne, which is not that dissimilar to the real stoniness of the Charlemagne side in youth, but I think it matures in a different way. And to me, it actually matures as Corton Blanc, and I would quite like to see a difference that you kept one appellation for Le Charlemagne en Charlemagne and called that either Charlemagne on its own or Corton Charlemagne. And you had an appellation Corton Blanc, which does already exist for a few vineyards, which are not allowed within Charlemagne. But I would actually expand that concept a little bit more if I were emperor of the world. So instead of that very narrow strip of vineyards that you have almost everywhere in the Cote de Nuit, Chivry, it's a bit wider, but mostly it's a very narrow strip. Cote de Beaune begins that way and then widens out further along. So. We've already dealt with Pernon and Alox and Ladoire as being part of the Hill of Corton. You've then got the bone satellites of Chorilet-Bone, which is lower-lying. In some ways, including not having any premier crews, it's a bit like the Marcenet of, uh, of the Cote de Bone, you could argue, and offers you affordable, attractive red wines. And Savigny-Lebone, which could be really good, I think, it's hard to make a clear differentiation between Savigny Le Bone and much of Bone as well. Uh, you get sandy soils in parts of both, but you also get more limestone areas. And there are some vineyards, the Dominode, Les Lavières, Les Vergeles, which for me count as pretty high class vineyards. And then uh, you cross the motorway, the auto route, I should say which is built there because the original plans had it being built on stills through the middle of Le Maurichet, would you believe? Fortunately, those plans got crushed, and so it's come round here through Savigny instead into Bone. So you've got Bone, and it gets ignored, Bone, because there's a lot of it, because it's almost all Premier crew, and it probably shouldn't be, because so much is in the hands of the big negociants who have more than they really quite know what to do with. There is a standout vineyard in Bone Greve, and part of Greve, the central bit of Greve, is a cut above most of the rest. And then you've got the Claude Mouche, which has developed its own life of its own. So Bone can be light 
and I won't say soft, but at least let's say supple and very easygoing. It can be a little bit tougher with a few more tannins around Grev in the middle, but at least in Grev, there's so much richness of fruit that it balances the, the tannins. It can be a little bit pointed and lacking enough flesh on the bones in some of the higher vineyards in the southern area. And those are some of the vineyards which perhaps shouldn't all have been Premier Cru. But when you get to the end, you move into Pomar, and as so often in Burgundy, you actually get vineyards on both sides of village borders, which have the same name but are spelt slightly differently. You have Bon Epinot, which is sort of as being a very light, supple wine. And then you have Pomar Epino, and because it's a leading premier crew in Pomar, everybody's expecting a big, tannic, powerful wine. Classically, people compare Pomar with Chevrolet Champotin. It's true that in both cases, there is an ancient watercourse, which has brought all sorts of mixed soils down from further up. But Pomar does divide either side of the small river that runs through the middle. And if you're on the right-hand side on the map, so the north side, a bit closer to Bone, you actually have slightly lighter soils, still got a certain amount of the iron oxide in them, and they still have some of Pomar's structure. But there is a bit more grace, things like the Clodis Epino, which can be a really graceful wine while still saying Pomar. But then on the other side, uh, the southern side, you have Pomar Rougia, which, again, there is talk that both that and Epino could maybe be classified as Grand Cru. My guess is it probably won't happen. I think it's politically quite difficult. It might do. I can see Grand Cru in the central core of Rougia. There is a huge depth to this wine, and it does have big supporting tannins, and it ages beautifully. So would that be Rouge and Bar? It's a bit like Clos Vuchot. It doesn't break down when you taste the wines quite as clearly as you would like it to. If you go and walk the vineyards, you can definitely see a difference. But there are some really good producers who happen to be in the Rougeau O. But it is in the Rougeau Bar where you see this extra depth, for sure. Confusingly, both of those key vineyards of Pomar, Rougen and Epineau, have two parts to them. So there's Grand Epineau and Petit Epineau, and then there's Rougen O and Rougen Bar. And then it gets even more confusing because things like Clos d'Epineau yeah. are in both Grand and Petit Epineau. And the Grand Clodis Epineau is in the Petit Epineau, not the Grand. And the Petit Epineau is bigger than the Grand and all the rest of it. So this is Burgundy at its best or worst. Um, for me, I think Epineau is a truly outstanding premier crew, and that's where I would leave it. Pomar, for the longest time, was a big favorite in the States. And for the longest time also, it has continued to sell at a higher price in bulk than Volnay. But for most of my working life, Volnay has been the village with the sex appeal. And I think of Pomar as being more clay-based. It's not true of every vineyard, of course. And Volnay as being more limestone-based. It's up on the side of the hill. There is no watercourse running through Volnay the way there is in Pomar or Gevray. And... You know, my heart is very much in Volnay, almost more than anywhere in the Cote de Nuit, in fact. And I also believe that the wines of Volnay, if you age them, can be up there with the Grand Cru's of the Cote de Nuit. But a little bit of a different history than the rest of the Cote de Bon, because the Dukes of Burgundy had a 
castle base there that they entertained a lot of kings, right? The dukes had their summer palaces in Volney, and so you have this collection of vineyards which refer to the Clos des Ducs, the Clos de la Cave des Ducs, the Clos du Chateau des Ducs, and so on. You expect the, you know, the Clos of the Library of the Duke or whatever else. But, uh, <laughs> and they're all monopoles, most famously, of course, the Marquis d'Angerville with his uh, Clos des Ducs. And it's always difficult with the monopole to be sure exactly how good the vineyard is because if you've got a great person making it, then you just think, wow, this is right at the top. But it's easier to work it out when you've got a whole load of different people making it and you can see a general tendency. So Caire was of the general vineyards, the one that everybody always said was great and remains great. And then after that, people probably talked in, let's say, the 19th century more about Chevray and Champon and not about the ones higher on the hill. And now we adore Clos de Chêne, partly because of the incredible Michel Lafarge's wine, and also Taipier uh, alongside it. And I did a series of tastings for the World of Fine Wine magazine in which we looked absolutely at the vineyards, the premier crew vineyards of all the villages, and we didn't do them blind because we wanted to know who the producers were so we could set aside what we understood about their winemaking techniques and really try to dig out what we could perceive of the individual terroir. And we did slightly mark our own cards by starting with the vineyards, which we expected to be less exciting and finishing with the ones we thought would be most exciting. But in Volney, it was the clearest of all. So you got vineyards like Ormo, which doesn't exist anymore, Miton, the ones next to Pomar, like Fremier as well. And they were all good, and they all had enough character and enough depth to merit being Premier Cru. But you got a sense of Volney Premier Cru and slight changes from one vineyard to another. But the vineyards didn't have a standout characteristic. And then Champon began to change that. Caire, Clodichon, Taipier, absolutely. And then quite separate is Sontenot, which is in Marseille, but given the courtesy title of, of Volney, which is quite a clay-based vineyard, but one which I find extremely satisfying and, and makes wines which age very well. So the thing about that vineyard is if it's in white, it's Merceau, and if it's in red, it's Volney Sontenot. That's right, yes. And you make the point that maybe the boundaries of it are a little large. Yes, there, there is one sector, the Sontenot du Milieu, which I think is clearly better than the, the others. Uh, I think the others remain predominantly red wine soil, but perhaps they could be village or, or maybe they're just about worth Premier Cru, but they're not the same quality as the Sontenot du Milieu can be. The so Volney and Merceau make twins, and Merceau, there are so many good producers. There's at least 30 that you'd be proud and privileged to deal with. And you can't say that about Punini at all. And they've got their little acolyte between Volney and uh, Merceau, which is Montelier, and then leading back from there, you've got Auxerre-Durès and Saint-Romain. So Saint-Romain probably a bit lucky to be made a, a village in its own right. But now with global warming, Saint-Romain is coming into its own. And Auxerre-Durès, one flank, makes some really very nice red wines, which are no longer as rustic as they once were. And the other flank, facing a bit north, is a continuation of the Merceau hillside, but as it turns around, more of a northern exposure, has got some very, very nice and very good value whites. Montelier is, I mean, it's a poor man's Volnay, if you like. 
but I find it very satisfying. It's got one quite special vineyard, Le Dures, which is a continuation from Oxe Dures. It's on a very steep south-facing slope. And oddly enough, even though it's mostly in a side valley, it forms almost a bowl and it can get very hot in Montelie in, in the hot vintages. So back to Merceau, I think you would be a man to talk to if I wanted to better understand some of those premier crews like Genevieve and Perrier. So Merceau is changing in character to some extent. I think that after Dr. Pavlov had finished with his dogs, he then started training French sommeliers who, after the word Merceau, they cannot help but talking about the flavors of beurre et noisette and butter and hazelnuts. And Merceau isn't like that anymore. It's no longer the rich, rounded wine it once was. And I think there are two reasons for that. There's a lot more emphasis at the village level on some of the vineyards higher on the slope. And you get vineyards like Les Navo, Tesson, those two in particular, Chevalier, Rouget, one or two others, which are, are baby premier crews, but they sell as village wines. And they are a little bit more in the inverted commas mineral style, much less in the buttery style. And many people will actually, if they don't make those singly, will make a blend between the lowest slopes, which are richer, more clay-based, and these ones high up. And then you've got, I think it's about 13 premier crews in Merceau. But there are three that people think of as the heartland, which are Perrier, Charme, Genevrier. And there's a lovely little crossroads on the minor roads there. You're standing facing down the hill. You've got Perrier on your right. You've got Genevrier on your left and also below you on your left. And you've got Charme below you on your right. And you feel that you're absolutely at the epicenter. You look across to the Jura Mountains. And those three are quite special. Charme, which is maybe the most classic Merceau vineyard in the sense that it is rounded with depth and uh, no sharp angles. Genevrier, where you're much more on the stones. Theoretically, you do get a little bit of a juniper characteristic in there, but you are more floral, more subtleties. It's an understated vineyard, and sometimes people miss its quality. But by the time you finish drinking your bottle, you know you've drunk a beautiful bottle, and it's in the elegance and the persistence and the aftertaste. And Perrier, which is a bit of a synthesis of the two, it's got clearly the most weight of all the Merceau vineyards, but it's also got the then you feel as well. It can get top heavy. You do need to restrain yourself a little bit. And for me, within Merceau, it's been perhaps a vineyard which has been more susceptible to the dreaded Premox pox because of that heaviness, which, if you aren't careful, can get in the way. But otherwise, if there were to be a Grand Cru for Merceau, then it, it does have more depth of character and probably greater consistency year in, year out, which is something a Grand Cru ought to have. And what about a vineyard like Porizo? Boucher, Porizo, Goutte d'Or, another little triumvirate there. And I think the Claudet Boucher, which Rulono has, can make fabulous wine. Porizo, it can be a bit rigid and a bit foursquare, but it can also be made with touch more finesse and elegance. And if you go that road and stop it being too rigid, then I think you can make really fine wine. But the joy of Merceau for me actually is often just at the village level. It, it is definitely the go-to village for village wine, much more than either Chassin or Piluni. 
Do you think that that's one reason why Merceau, the village, has been able to sustain so many good growers, is that the village wines are good? Partly that. Uh, partly it is the biggest of the villages in terms of production as well. It's almost a small town, Merceau, and it does have a strong life of its own and in a way that Puligny slightly misses. Puligny has suffered from its fame, the hyphenation with Morichet, that everybody's wanted to buy it. The negotiations have always been much keener to buy Puligny, perhaps Chassin, more than Merceau on the whole. And whenever you get a situation in which it's too easy to sell your wine, then there isn't quite the same incentive to do a good job. If you could name more than six producers whose wines you really liked who are based in Puligny, you'd be doing well. Of course, it does have some truly, truly great vineyards, as well as the Grand Cru's. I think the premier crews such as Pucelle, Combet, Volatier, Caire, are absolutely magical, really, really first rate. And you can't take that away from Puligny. The wines get lighter when you go up to the top of the hill. But we mustn't forget there's a little hamlet in between Puligny and Merceau called Blany. And I'd love to see Blany coming more onto the map. What color did you want to see it come back in? I enjoyed it in both colors, but it has turned a bit too white. The reds are austere when they're young, but that to me is not a fault in, in Burgundy. So many domains have ripped out their reds and turned it into white. And we're seeing in much of the Cote de Bone the, the whitening of the coat. And I, I'm really sad about that when Pinot is being taken out of vineyards, which should be red wine vineyards. A significant proportion of Chassin Maraschet should be red and not white. But also you're seeing lots of white Montelis, lots of white Savigny, white Centenay, white Bone as well. And in many cases, the wines are just lacking in character. There's much less character in the white wines. But I discussed with one particular producer who has got some Chassin Maréchal Clos Saint-Jean, or maybe the one he's talking about is La Maltrois. It's one or other of those vineyards. And at the moment it's in red, but it needs to be pulled out because the vines are old and tired. And I said, what color are you going to replant it? Fearing the answer. And he said, well, look, look at it this way. If I plant it in white, I will make a bigger crop each year, typically in white than red. It sells for a higher price. It actually costs less to make. I can take it to market earlier. It's a no-brainer. But I'm going to plant it in red because that particular <laughs> vineyard ought to be red. So well done, him. Well, there's a couple like that in Sassan Maurichet, and I think yeah. you referred to two of them, right? Clos Saint-Jean is the one which I feel most strongly about. And in particular, the great majority of village Chassain is clearly red wine soil. Now, the problem here has been that the quality of the Pinot selection has not been good enough. That's one of the things that puts Volney at the head of the queue because a couple of families, both the Dangevilles and the Boyau family, have preserved really good strains of Pinot. And Marange, Centenay, Chassin Maraschet, it's mostly rather poor clones which give biggish crops, give you the sugar levels, but don't give you the intensity of fruit and make robust and rather dull tannic wines. People have tried to tame them by switching from the cane pruning to a spur pruning to a cordon pruning. And you bet you can 
tame them, so you don't get excessive yields, you get a bit more concentration, but you don't get the flare that way. So I'd rather see people actually ripping them out and starting again from scratch with a finer version of Pinot. And if that could happen, then we could get magical wines from down that end of the coat. Uh, I've run ahead of myself a little bit here. No, that makes sense because, I mean, there's more than one producer in Burgundy that really it seems like a great source of their strength in terms of quality is vine material. Some people really embraced clones from the nursery in the 70s and other people really didn't. And the people who didn't seem to be reaping some rewards from that these days. Yes. I'm not completely against clones. I think people are moving further away from clones. We think of clones as being very artificial, but what were they? What they were, were a selection of really successful vines, initially a lot taken from the Ponceau vineyards, and then you just propagated, propagated, propagated out of those, and you removed anything that was deviant, so that you then just got something which was stable and reproduced one particular bit of vine material. Now, the danger is if you just use that, if you use a single clone in your planting, then you may lack complexity in your vineyards. So most people who have used clones have at least tried to make sure they use several. However, the tendency now, once again, is to go back to the Selection Massal, reproducing the population which already exists. Even then, most people will try and select for successful vines do I know one or two producers who say it's just like the human population, you should have something of everything. Um, I would like to see a much better Pinot planting program in those southern villages. And Sontenay, for example, vineyards like Clotavan, which was so famous in the 19th century and earlier, could make really great wine. The other factor, which I'm pretty convinced about, is that the yeasts which are going to ferment your wine which, of course, in Burgundy, the majority of people are using natural yeasts, occasionally supplemented by something purchased. But in general, it's the yeast which is working as a population in your cellar, which will be doing the bulk of the fermentation work. Now, I think the researchers have shown that each individual vineyard has got its own yeast population, and so the bloom that's coming in on the grapes will bring different yeasts for each individual vineyard. And they maybe get to work for the first 1% or 2% of the fermentation, but then they get killed off, and it's the old Saccharomyces that takes over. And then I think it's the dominant strain of yeast that you've got in your cellar that overwinters perfectly satisfactorily. And so you sometimes can find that there is more similarity between two separate appellations made in one cellar than those two appellations made in somebody else's cellar. So it's not that the two Pudonies are similar and the two Chassins are similar, but the two made in this cellar are, and the two made in that cellar have their character. One of the things that the book is really good on is the articulation about border vineyards. And you've touched on it a few times already when you spoke about Vone bordering Louis St. George or Pomar bordering Volnay. The crews that are on those borders can sort of have a, a touch of the other. Yes, Volnay Fremier, 
which borders on to Pomar Fromier, and as always, they spell them differently, one with an R, one with a T. You feel a, a Pomar underlay to the Volnay Fromier with a little bit of the Volnay elegance on top. You can see that it's a, a wine in two minds with two characteristics going on. You also drift across from Puligny Combet into Massocharm, and the Combet is the most Merceau-like of all the Pulinis. In Puligny Refer, which is next to the bottom part of Charm, uh, in fact, an awful lot of the owners of Puligny Refer come from Merceau. Or equally, Chevrochambertin Combat, for a long time, the only owners all came from Maurice Saint Denis. For those listeners who've stayed this long into it, maybe we could reward them with your thoughts on some of the Grand Crus, because we've mentioned a few, but we haven't mentioned a number of others. I've always had a real weakness for Musigny. Absolutely adore that vineyard. It is the iron fist in the velvet glove. I'm also fascinated by the twins of Claude La Roche and Claude Saint-Denis, which I think have probably been underrated over the years. The whole of Maurice Saint-Denis has been underrated. You get a more hedonistic quality in the Clos Saint-Denis. It's a brighter, succulent, silky fruit, and it's red fruit. And Claude La Roche, it's a little bit more matte as opposed to gloss. It's rough silk rather than spun silk. Sometimes you get some blue fruit characters in there, which is interesting. And it's a wine that bides its time and turns into something completely glorious with 15, 20 years age. So I am more of a Claude Laroche person than Claude Saint-Denis, but at the same time I'm greedy and I want both. <laughs> they are vineyards which are worth a bit more of our attention. I think Charm Chambertin gets maligned sometimes. It definitely has a character of its own, which I think of as strawberries and cream. There are a number of people who've got really ancient vines in there, the Rotis, Denis Bachelet, several others. The bit that's called Massoyer Chambertin stretches down to the main road, and you look at that and think somebody got greedy. If you look at Francoise Vanier Petit's wonderful geological maps, you can see that the bit of soil, which is in the mid-slope where you'd expect the Grand Cru to be, dips down to the main road there as well. And Masoyer has a quite different character. Almost everybody sells it as Charm, but it's a quite different character to Charm. It doesn't have strawberries and cream. It's much more gravelly, chunky, a little bit awkward, but probably denser in style. Chapelle Chambertin and Griot Chambertin are the two which I've probably had the most difficulty in fully understanding. For a long time, I used to say that I'd hardly ever had a great Chapelle Chambertin. I used to think it was the weakest of the Ponceau wines. Whether that was to do with their exact location or to do with the plant material, it could have been that. Um, but look, isn't this fascinating? There are two of you. You're twin brothers, and you know a bit about wine, but you've never been to Burgundy before. You haven't got long to go there. You decide you're actually going to split up. And one of you goes to Domaine Ponceau and one of you goes to Domaine Rousseau. And you come back and you meet up for dinner afterwards. One of you thinks that Claude La Roche is the greatest vineyard in the universe and that Chambertin is frankly disappointing. The other one thinks that Chambertin is unbelievable and Claude La Roche is not in the same class. 
simply because at the two domains, that's the way the wines actually typically have shown across the years. And it makes a mockery of anybody ever being too certain about anything in Burgundy. So um, in Von Romane, as it happens, you've got one, two, three, four, make sure I don't miss one, which are monopolies. So we'll put them to one side. And then you've got Richebourg and uh, Romane Saint-Vivant, which are so markedly different in style, even though they're adjacent. Richebourg, there's no doubt about. In, for me, it makes up a triumvirate with Musigny and Chambotin plus Clodebez. Um, Romane Saint-Vivant, it is in many ways the quintessence of von Romane. Richebourg's got a tiny bit more depth feel the clay a little bit more, and it's that depth and intensity which makes it obviously Grand Cru. But Romane Saint-Vivant, the word Romane is, is correctly in there. It is absolutely the quintessence of what the village is about. And it's a tiny bit lighter, perhaps, than some of the other Grand Crus, but not enough to want to change its category. And you hear that Romani Conti, you can't understand, you're at least 50 years old, and Latash is much more accessible, and, and you can sort of drink it more young. I find absolutely the opposite. I can understand Romani Conti, and the very few times I've been privileged to drink it. And when tasting out a barrel, you can see why uh, Aubert de Vilaine doesn't want you to spit it. And Latash, I find, sits rather apart, in the same way that in a cellar in Chambon Musigny, Bon Mar sits completely out of line from the Premier Cruise and then Amarez and finally Musigny. And Latache, it's got a sort of a, a crab shell around the fruit. And the tannins, I find, rather firmer. People say that it's a succulent and accessible. Maybe it's me, but I just don't find it that way. And I find it needs a long time. You know, even at 10, 12 years old, I can't see my way into it properly. So in terms of the white Grand Cruz, Chevalier, Maurichet, Batar, and Bienvenu, what do you think there in, in that run of Cruz? So I'm going to draw a Batar plus Bienvenu Batar parallel with Chambotin plus Clos de Bez, in that there ain't a lot of call between the two in terms of absolute quality. But you get in a grace and an elegance and a, almost a little touch of cashmere in the Bienvenue and in the Clos de Bez, and a little bit more structure and probably a greater aging ability in the Batar and the Chambotin. But do we want to say that that makes one better than the other? Well, you know, whatever. It is interesting that there is genuinely a fault line between Maurichet and Batar, and there's genuinely a fault line between Chevalier Maurichet and Maurichet, and it's very rare in Burgundy that things actually fall as neatly as that. And Montrachet is the non-pareil. And Chevalier has got a clearly different character. And it is actually pretty accessible pretty early on. It's a, a whiter soil, lots of white stones, very much a white fruit approach, whereas you can get some yellow fruit down at the bottom there in the Batars and the Bienvenue Batars. When they first made the Grand Cruz, they actually applied for Blanchot, Chassin Montrachet Blanchot, to be Blanchot Batal Maraché, which correctly didn't get called. There's one tiny corner of it which comes uphill and possibly merits it or very close to. 
in the same way there's just one bit of the Creo Batar which could merit it, but then the rest falls away a little bit too far. And as we're on the topic of whites, what do you think about Chablis? Why I like Chablis so much, I think, is because of the freshness of it with a persistence of flavor as well. And actually, I really like the way the wines age, so most people don't give them the chance. And I'm super excited about the top premier crew vineyards, things like Monte de Tonnerre, best bits of Vaillant, of Montmain, Montemilieu, and within Montmain when you've got things like Les Butons and Forêt and, and so on. There is such individual character in the individual top premier crews. Not all of them. A few too many have been made premier crew. And a lot too much individual land has probably got promoted to Chablis. And then you've got the Grand Crus, which are a little bit harder to put it into perspective because most people don't have the patience to age them for the length of time they ought to be aged. But Les Clos is a very special vineyard, and I think Vaudizier would be my next. Vaudizier, the Valley of Desire. Now you've moved completely out of the wine trade and you're doing wine media. Has that allowed you greater access? Because I would imagine as an importer, maybe you wouldn't be able to make certain appointments. And now as a writer, you would be able to. Well, that's right. As an importer, partly there wasn't time. But also, in general, you wouldn't go to the ones which were exclusive with your, your rivals. That's true. And now I can go where I like, and I'm getting to see lots of other domains and constantly out there prospecting to find the next new one. And one of the frustrations of being an importer was if you did find another one, you know, your book might already be full. And so I can only take a new person if I drop somebody I've worked with for years. Now you're going to move into an online venture. What do you intend to do online? I was very clear in writing the book that I didn't want to put any tasting notes in it. There's no room for a tasting note in a book because it's out of date by the time the book's published. So online is clearly the better location for that. So what I'm planning to do here is there will be a database of back tasting notes. If you do want to happen to check, you've got an opportunity to buy it either bottles for yourself or in a restaurant, a particular wine, and you want to check it out first, you can do that. But also, there will be regular reports. There will be really big ones on the new vintage. There will be a lot of verticals. There will be sort of thematic essays as well when I get to grips with a topic like whole cluster, like Premox, whether Hale is here to stay, uh, those sorts of things. So here, there will be much more immediate day-to-day -day information, little news items as well. And that anybody who really cares about Burgundy will have all my experience available to them at any minute. Jasper Morris values persistence both in the winemaking, the wines, and in the research of books and online websites. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you, Levy. Jasper Morris of the book Inside Burgundy and the Jasper Morris Inside Burgundy website. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. 
You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. This episode came together with a lot of help from the Wasserman family, who have helped countless writers and journalists learn more about Burgundy over the years. So in Hong Kong, it's, it's all happened very quickly. But there is such wealth there that people have been able to purchase. Most of them are very strong about the authenticity of what they get. And I don't think I have had a single fake bottle of Great Burgundy amongst the group of people who I regularly drink with in Hong Kong. And it's extraordinary to see quite how much seems to have drifted from other markets. The stock has been bought up and has ended up over there. There's a little bit of an issue in making sure that there is enough quality storage. I met a surgeon, in fact, in Hong Kong, who's got a little app on his watch that tells him if his private cellar, which is all air-conditioned, if the temperature varies by more than half a degree over a short period of time, then alarms go off on his watch. Sort of imagine him in the middle of open heart surgery on some unfortunate patient. Sorry, mate, got to go and look after my cellar. I've just had the alarm go off.